This week on the NetApp Tech on Tap podcast, we continue Solid Fire Month by bringing in Solid Fire's developer advocate, Josh Atwell, where we talk about DevOps, gingers, and automation for the people. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. I am Justin Parisi and sitting next to me is... Andrew Sullivan? No! <sighs> I screwed oh, it up. Oh, you are not Andrew. I am? I'm not? We could do role reversal. Okay. Let's role play. You're okay. Andrew. Okay. You're Glenn. Oh, okay. All right. So uh, Andrew today is Glenn. Glenn today is Andrew. Yeah, let's not do that. Okay. So <laughs> my name is Glenn Sizemore. <laughs> Yeah, I'm already confused. The listener must be just sitting there at home, going, "What are you? You guys have lost it. Uh, we're a little loopy. Uh, it's 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 been, or at least I'm a little loopy. I'm 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 at the end of a, a bit of a, a crazy week, which we're we'll dive into a little bit uh, in this show because it's directly related to today's topic. Um, I know you you just finished up a pretty uh, severe sprint there because I know every time I looked at the uh, Jabber app on my phone, you were online all weekend. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, we've been in full crunch for uh, probably fourteen some odd days, um, but but we 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 got the release out, so you know we oh so we can talk about that. We now. can, Ooh. yeah. We actually have something to talk about this week. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. I don't uh, I don't have to talk in uh, weird you know possibilities and and talk around things. I can actually just discuss what the heck I'm doing. So that'll be fun. Sitting across from Glenn is Andrew Sullivan. Andrew, say so how you doing today. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. You were very energetic in that introduction. Are you? Are Every you day well, is a gift. Are you Andrew. well caffeinated? Today? Every day is a gift. I, I've had several cups of caffeine. Several. 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 I is don't it, have any monster drinks though. Uh, well, okay, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Uh, and of course, sitting next to Andrew, continuing our our uh, trend this this it's month. Solid Fire month. It is the month of Solid Fire. Uh, February has not ended yet. At least I don't think it has. We yep. get an extra day of February this year. We do, and, and you know it's it's Valentine's Day this month as well, and you know the theme is red, and we have a redheaded stepchild more or less in the studio. Uh, Josh Otwell is here. Hi, yes, I am a redheaded stepchild. Oh. I'm actually legitimately a redheaded stepchild. I didn't know that, and it's now funny. Yeah, yep. yeah, I not, am not so funny anymore, is it? No, I feel like a jerk, but that's fine. Yeah, no, it's okay. I'm a walking cliche. I am a uh, redheaded stepchild rocket scientist. So, yeah. And a Scorpio for those who are into that kind of thing. Ooh. Do you like long walks on the beach? No, I actually despise the beach. The I hate sun walks. is my mortal enemy. I really hate walks. I yeah. am ginger. <laughs> Gingers don't like the sun, that's for sure. Yes, we, we of the redheaded species do not like the sun. <laughs> we, we, are, we, are, we are of fair skin. So today's topic uh, for the listeners at home, uh, we uh, we we wanted to to dive in and start picking apart uh, the topic of infrastructure automation a little bit. Um, it's automation for the people. It is. It is. You know, it, it it's a continuation of uh, kind of an epiphany that 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 I personally had. I don't know what it was a month and a half ago when we had Rippy on. Uh, and 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 uh, Jonathan Rippy, the the developer who writes our our Docker uh, plugin integration, 
uh, he made a comment about, you know, when I'm talking to people about Docker, I always have to have this conversation about DevOps versus Ops Dev and, and figure out, like, what side of the house do you really live on? Are you integrated with the developer side or are you integrated with the production operations side? And, and which side do you primarily, like, which factors are first in, in your thought process? And since that observation, like, I've, I've been walking around looking at the world in a completely different way. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, I, this very week, I've had just another one of these leaps where I'm just like, well, maybe there's another angle to this. Um, and, and I just want to kick off the show and, and open it up with, with this point. You know, just start off with, with generals and... Well, wait, wait a minute. Before you get yeah. too far in depth. Uh, so, so, Josh, I, it's easy for us because we've known Josh for... Like oh, yeah, five so years we, we now. Really, yeah. Oh crap! Yeah. yeah, we didn't introduce you, did we? No, yeah. that's okay. We're well, just like, old, yeah, Josh Atwell's here, but he's yeah, Twitter. Fam- he's Twitter famous. So yeah. we don't need to introduce him. I, I, I do like the idea of like Josh is here and just get used to it. Just drop the mic. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't feel like we actually do need to introduce you because I can't imagine anyone doesn't know who you are. He's, but he's pretty big on the internet. If, he if, is. I, I'm taller on the internet. That is for certain. Do, <laughs> do you have an IMDb entry? Uh, do not. But I should work on that. You should. He has a book, though. Tell us a little bit about the book you have. Uh, yeah, I actually have two out right now. Mastering vSphere 6, I contributed to that. And the DevOps for VMware Administrators book, I contributed to that as well. So we have we have an, a genuine author here as opposed to us fake authors. We just write technical reports. Andrew wrote a real book. You wrote a real book? Why so don't did, I do this? So did Glenn. What? Yeah. No, it, it came out last So month. we have three official real authors and one fake author. I've written some short stories. Do you want to read them? <laughs> some poetry. Angsty. Yeah. It's not open mic. For when I was a teenager. <laughs> so Josh. Actually, we definitely don't want to read those. Can we can we have like a poetry session here? Like a slam? Are you are you a bogon now? Okay. Back on the rails. I'm gonna pull this train if I gotta pick it up and set it back down. <laughs> Josh, why don't you uh, go ahead and share for the one listener who perhaps has not heard of you before, uh, what it is you do for Solid Fire and, and a little bit about about your background. Sure. Uh, so I am Josh Atwell. I am the developer advocate for SolidFire, uh, which is a really awesome way of saying that I spend my time uh, talking with people about how they automate and uh, leverage SolidFire's API and our different uh, SDKs and, and other automation platforms. And on the other side of that, I also work with our engineers and folks and let them know what's going out on the field, ways that we can improve those integrations. So in other words, I take things from the customer and I give them to the engineers, and I take things from the engineers and I give it to the customers. I have people skills. So what exactly is it that you do here? I'm still not exactly sure. No, I, uh, I, that, that is actually in a nutshell. I, I spend a lot of time like as a liaison between those two groups, and, and I work very hard to get our engineers and our customers to communicate with one another. Like I, I want to be a facilitator to allow them to build up a community where those people can you know, interact with each other in a public-facing forum so that more people can learn about the different things that are possible you know, with delivering services and automation uh, against the SolidFire platform. So it's really fun. Yeah, so I saw that, I think it was last month, maybe December, that you started the developer community for SolidFire. So there is an entire section of your, your community's page and all that devoted just to developers and, and integrating with the software systems. Yeah, from a SolidFire perspective, prior to you know the acquisition from NetApp, uh, that was our community, right? So uh, we actually launched it earlier in Q4, kind of a soft launch, if you will, just like a good casino. And we've... Um, 
you know, been bringing on engineers and a few customers. Uh, you know, getting started, we got uh, we've got people who have reached out and had questions and gotten assistance and and made connections. Uh, I've got really big plans for this year. We will get rolled into the broader NetApp community on the developer network. I've already, you know, in fact, I have a meeting tomorrow about, you know, getting a timeline and, and the steps in place to make that transition. And, you know, it'll it'll be a big focus for me this year, you know, facilitating those connections. That's fantastic. I know we've we've had decent adoption of the developer uh, community on side of our on NetApp's own community network, right? So community.netapp.com. And there's there's a lot of people who are interested in, I think, leveraging not just the ONTAP APIs, but SolidFire's as well, right? And in particular, because I think a lot of that comes back to SolidFire's customer base is uh, there's a lot of service providers, and service providers love to automate. So it's it's fantastic having uh, that sort of expertise, right, coming into the company. Yeah, and I'll, I'll make one point about you know our customer base when when it comes to this topic is it's not just service providers. We have a ton of enterprises who are also you know very aware on how they're delivering services and how they're managing things at scale. You know that's one of the areas where when you you hit a certain point, and I'm sure we have a lot of listeners where it just gets very cumbersome trying to you know keep track of everything and deliver things quickly you know at the pace that everything else needs to be delivered so you know being able to do that programmatically uh, it's relatively you know not common in the storage industry because you know in the storage industry it's typically been you're going to SSH and run a bash or expect script and that's the way that you automate in fact it's it's very common that, that, that. that was literally the conversation that I had with NetApp six years ago when we started down the PowerShell path. It was me going, you guys need a PowerShell toolkit so that I yep. can manage this thing from, from the Windows side of the shop because you know, I just don't have SSH because at that time it was Server 2008 and it was a very different ecosystem. Um, and NetApp's response then was... Well, just use SSH and expect because, as you said, you you nailed it, man. That was the opinion of the industry. Oh, it's still very much a a common thread from a you know storage management perspective yeah. because that's what we've always been accustomed to. Here's a funny story, um, and and sometimes I get looked at funny when I admit this. I actually am not that interested in storage, right? You know, I even when going into Solid Fire, you know, there was there was this. Why are you going to a storage company? And interestingly enough, this past uh, VMworld, I was having a, a great conversation with Alan Renouf where I was going over a lot of the stuff I was doing with PowerShell, with storage policy-based management, being able to dynamically provision this stuff and basically bring SolidFire into a, the vSphere environment and policy management and all of this with a few PowerShell functions. And I get done doing the demo and showing it to him, and he looks at me and goes, I get it now. Like, well, yeah, I figured you would get this stuff. I mean, it's right up your wheelhouse. Yeah. He goes, no, no, no. I get why you're at Solid Fire. Like now, it makes sense because traditionally we look at you've got disks there, whether they're spinning or flash, and their purpose is to store data and to deliver I/O, right? But you know, the perspective that I've always had is you know, I look at Solid Fire, and and previously I managed NetApp some, you know, and used VSC and and with PowerShell, but. I look at SolidFire as a development target, right? It is it is a piece of infrastructure that I can code against, yeah. and I can do things that are atypical from from a storage perspective. Uh, one way that I look at it and that we discuss it is that when you look at delivering a virtual machine, when you 
do the CPU and the memory, it's never permanent. There's no permanence there anymore, right? You can go in and you can change the number of CPUs, you can change the amount of RAM, you can change the number of disks, sure, but you know the uh, storage that's delivered to that is relatively static because it's always backed by disks that have a certain speed, a certain RAID group. You know that LUN is is relatively fixed. In the solid fire view of the world, you know when we deliver storage, that is no longer fixed. You can actually manipulate the amount of I/O that can be served to that you know that volume or that data store, and you can modify the capacity and you can do those very independently. And once you're able to do that, you completely change the way that you address your storage. Because now, you know, I can go through, uh, and I have this presentation that I do with customers that I call the day in the life of running SolidFire in your vSphere environment, where I can talk about different scenarios throughout the day and how you can leverage our automation integrations to programmatically, either from a scheduled task or running a PowerShell script or, you know, going through one of our plugins and, and executing change to manipulate storage to address the changing needs of the day. And that's not something that we've traditionally been able to do in the storage industry. Well, it's uh, I agree with everything you said except the last sentence. Uh, I think we have been able to do it in the storage industry. The thing that is changing is is the bar. Uh, it, it, it traditionally, you know, depending on how far back you want to rewind, you know, we could go back 15 years and it was all still there. You know, it was largely driven by tools like Tivoli and, and, and standards right. like SMIS, and, and they were big, cumbersome systems that were incredibly expensive. But if you had this problem, like, it could be solved. What has changed is now all you need is, like, literally 36 days' experience with PowerShell or Bat Python and, and SDK documentation, and you're able to jump in and, and start knocking out, you know, full data center orchestration automation uh, and, and the quote-unquote infrastructure as code movement, you know, that bar is just so much lower now that, that really there's no excuse not to be doing it. So, yes, I, I agree that the bar, right, the threshold entry is much lower, right? Uh, I mean, case in point, right, the, the really great, you know, easy-to-use RESTful interface to, you know, uh, uh, elements, right, on the SolidFire platform, right? Zappy's existed forever, right, on, on NetApp, but... It's gotten easier to access yeah. over the years, right? The PowerShell commandlets, right? The PowerShell toolkit is a great example of that. I, I think what's starting to change, though, is the mindset of administrators, right? Because, uh, I mean, Glenn, you and I used to work together, right? Way back in 2007, 2008, we were automating against NetApp systems then, yeah. right? The, the, the difference now is that, you know, uh, storage administrators and DBAs are a lot alike, right? They are trusted with... The, the most valuable asset at the org at the company, right? Yep. DBAs typically, especially if it's a relational right database, Oracle is the stereotypical example, right? That's where the actual right the 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 money because yep. data is often actually money, right? Uh, resides, right? Storage system is the same. So you end up with these ultra conservative you know administrators in those positions, and they simply don't trust automation, and that is changing as we go forward as applications are bringing some of those features up into their level, right? In other words, instead of, you know, the, the traditional platform two type applications where they assume they, 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 the infrastructure is infallible, right? The storage will never go away. The storage will always store my data and it will never, any, nothing will ever happen to that. The network is always there. I can always communicate between my, my different uh, uh, software instances. Yeah. 
and platform three, right, where now you have these highly distributed applications that know that, no, none of that's true. So they're, they're bringing a lot of that on board, and it's allowing a lot more flexibility for those supporting roles, I think, in order to provide additional services in a more automated and a more flexible manner. So, but, okay, so, so but to, to, to come full circle uh, and, and, and go back to the point that I was making at the top of the show, uh, before I so rudely remembered that uh, we hadn't actually introduced Josh yet. Um, the, the observation that I have made, uh, and I don't know that this is true, it's just something that, that I'm starting to think, and I'm going to do what I've been doing lately and just talk about it on the internet and see if uh, people start yelling at me, because that seems to be a pretty quick way to, to, to flush ideas out. Um, Val, when we had Val on the very first time, he introduced me to, to his favorite book, uh, a book called The Developer is the New Kingmaker, which basically just outlines the fact that in the 21st century, every single organization on the planet has software that's in their money-making path. There's software in between you and revenue. And the developers that write that software, they decide who wins. It's not your idea. Your ideas are worthless. It's the execution. And it's, it's whether or not it was executed at a high enough bar for your customers to, to look at it seriously and go, yeah, I'll pay for that. Here's my money. By the way, I had to, to blood and sweat and tears and weekends and missing birthdays to get this money, but I'm going to give it to you because it's worth it, right? There's value here. There is something very similar that happens inside the infrastructure side of the house um, that, that I don't think is, is really talked about. There, there is a similar king-making uh, occurring, except it's the infrastructure automation guy. It's the ops dev guy, right, or gal. It's the individual who's sitting there in the data center looking at it going, listen, guys, stop with the platform one, two, three stuff. I can automate everything inside this room. What do you want deployed? I'll build it, and I'll build it at scale. Like that, that jump and that mindset, it really is the same or at least I think it is. I think it's the same jump that that IT organizations need to make from an infrastructure, like how, how do you manage this thing? How do you interact with it? Uh, perspective that, that, that businesses have made towards their internal development. Businesses no longer look at internal software development as, as cost, right? They understand that that's, it's a value chain. It's, it's how they make their money. Your infrastructure is the same way. It really is. Yeah, and I think we're saying absolutely the same thing, right? Um, in that infrastructure is not just a cost center anymore yeah right and whether it's it's you know the application architecture plays a role in that um, but ultimately it's providing a service in an appropriate amount of time with an appropriate SLA yeah and one of the one of the things I also talk about frequently is what what I call the uh, infrastructure developer and this is where you have you know uh, essentially a, a software developer who is consuming the APIs that are now made available whether it's you know, and, and we'll we'll throw out like AWS and cloud platforms, yeah. right? They have APIs, sure do. And you know, you look at now, we're starting to see more companies produce more robust and more capable APIs for on-premises infrastructure. And as such, the the people who have currently been looking and leveraging primarily these cloud APIs are now able to to point that lens back and say, oh, well, I can deliver the same types of things that I've done over there in the cloud internally and in some cases even more because, well, you have more control. Like you you yeah. understand what the infrastructure is. You understand all the relationship mappings. You're like you, you do have 
a, a level of visibility and at a at a macro level of what's going on in the data center. And to your point, you you are able to to now say like, what do you want to do? Like, what is what is that that you're trying to accomplish? And where are and I think the really important thing is is where are your constraints and your bottlenecks? Oh God, like, yes. What are the things that you're having trouble with? that are sucking out time in your development lifecycle and sucking out time and resources in your, you know, your operations side, like on both sides of that fence. And I find that, you know, we're going to see a, a growing uh, rise, you know, a big rise of what I call the infrastructure developer, because these are the people who are going to be the on-premises, you know, kings you know, in, in the environment because they are going to affect the the most value add impact to the business. Yep. And they are going to be the ones who are going to have to, you know, really help be the glue that makes a DevOps approach even even in organizations who aren't mature enough to to adopt a full DevOps mode and and to be able to have that culture uh, and are, you know, just too too big in their own minds to to be able to adopt that in a in a reasonable period of time. Yeah. Even having these people in place are going to help facilitate those same types of, you know, uh I guess values and the same approaches that you would have in in a truly what you would call the ideal, you know, DevOps environment. So there's there's a lot of ground between our traditional enterprise data centers and where they can be in delivering resources on you know on premises and then from there also extending into the cloud and you know being able to have this as a a large macro view of where applications are what those needs are and how you can deliver those without injecting people into the process yeah yeah i think you bring up a, a really great point in that Infrastructure shouldn't be the bottleneck in deploying services and applications inside of your organization, right? I infrastructure is arguably the easiest part of the whole thing, right? Just laying out servers, connecting things together, right, is relatively simple compared to oftentimes the, the complexity inside of the applications. Well, I mean, it, it, it can be. It, it depends on how you go about doing it, right? Uh, you can introduce a whole bunch of problems uh, into an architecture, and you can you can make the whole thing just a heck of a lot more painful uh, if you screw up the infrastructure in the smallest way. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so it's a tier that oh, yeah. that is very intolerant to no, mistakes. Make, yeah. Let's let's make no yeah. no bones about it. Right. Anything can be made hard if you if you really want to. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I I think what we're seeing though is as we find more infrastructure components becoming extensible. Having APIs, SDKs, PowerShell, you know, Python, whatever it is, yeah. as we see more growth in that uh, that arena, you're going to see that you know having mistakes is more forgivable because you can you know adjust to those mistakes yep. and rectify those problems much more quickly because you have more tools at your disposal to do so. And this is where you know when when we talk about software-defined data center. Um, you know, and I may be taking a leap on my own because it's a slightly different you know, viewpoint from, yeah, I'm going to do my jump to conclusions, Matt, here. Yes. Um, I don't look at software-defined data center. When you, when you talk about software-defined networking or software-defined storage, you know, traditionally we hear that they say, like, well, it's, it's really just software that can run on anything and it doesn't matter. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't really buy that. I think yeah. that's one element of software-defined. I think what really makes software-defined is that when you are able to modify the data center programmatically, 
with software, with code, either by initiating it yourself as an individual or by having it done automatically based on feedback from the environment, where the environment says, hey, this link is down, right? Do all the rerouting, move all the applications and point them to a different path, or this particular storage device is no longer available, programmatically change it, or saying this application is spiking, it's abnormal, we recognize that, not only are we going to send an alert, but we're also going to modify the performance capa- capability of the storage to kind of help, you know, triage. And, yeah. and these things happen automatically, you know, before a human has to get involved, right? The software is determining what the characteristics of the infrastructure should be. So uh, I'm I'm going to be a, a little bit controversial here and and throw something out there. So do you think that the uh, the popularity, if you will, of hyperconverged or hyperconverged-like solutions with virtualization administrators is because they can get those types of features from their storage offering that a traditional storage team is not capable of delivering. Right? Jumping back to what I was like saying. What? Well, like jumping g- back to what I was saying before. Right? Yeah. Uh, you and I again, we worked yeah. together previously, right? The virtualization team needs a new LUN, right? We need mm-hmm. to add some more a, a new VMware data store. I go to the storage team and say, hey, I need 10 terabytes of storage. They say, well, what do you need 10 terabytes for? Why do you need 10 terabytes? Right? I just gave you like 30 terabytes six months ago. Yeah. You've already used all that stuff up? Fine, I'll give you a LUN, right? Okay, here, fill out this help desk ticket, and in three weeks, we'll get you that LUN. As opposed to, I just provision the storage off of whatever I manage as a virtualization administrator. Right? I'm having IOPS issues. I'm having latency issues. Well, so I, I control that yeah, resource see, as yeah. opposed to getting those services in a much more seamless manner from the storage team. So I think we're talking about the same thing, but I'm talking about it at a completely different scale and in a completely different problem set. Uh, Yes, different scales, absolutely. Yeah, so to me, they're both coming at the same problem from two different angles. And and if you really want to get down to the brass tacks of it, the brass tacks is development cycles are shorter and the technology is more complicated, right? Think about the realities of, of, of that equation. You have less time, and you're doing things faster, and the infrastructure and the tools that you're working with are getting more complicated. That inherently means you know less about the pieces you're working with. It's the only way the math works. You can't do more right in less amount of time and, and maintain the same level of depth of expertise. Speak for yourself. Well, that's true. There are some some superhuman individuals such some, as yourself. Some people are more scalable than others. Yeah, apparently. But but the at the heart of it, right? That that's really where it is. And 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 because that that fact exists, right? It's a reality that everyone inside this space is dealing with. Um, it has spawned a number of different technical solutions that solve this problem, right? Docker, in my opinion is a technical solution that is addressing this problem. It is it is reducing the complexity in the application stack so that you don't have to have that expertise that you need to have to, to run a similar deployment uh, using a traditional type one hypervisor, right? It's much, much, much more complicated. It's just as manageable, but the the, the knowledge bar is a lot higher for, for what you need to know, right? If, if, if you're taking, you know, the, if we're going to use the word software-defined data center, we're probably talking about vSphere because they're the only ones who use the words in, in that combination. Um, that you know, a full-up deployment, vSphere six, vCenter, NSX, you know, vCops, the whole nine. 
you know, everything that goes along with that, potentially third-party storage or even, you know, some 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 vSAN integrated stuff if you're crazy. Like, there's, there's all sorts of options in there. Um, you can automate and orchestrate all of that. It all has an API. The reason that there are hyper-converged solutions in the market is because the people who are managing those environments have never learned to do this. This is a skill that is completely missing from their bag. And when when we try to, or at least when I personally go have these conversations with, with customers and, and with administrators, I run into a lot of, well, I don't know how to do that. I'm not that kind of person. Yeah, well... Which, which by the way... Complete and other nonsense. Nobody pops out of the cradle and knows how to write code. That's not how this works. So you, you've heard my thing about, you know, there's, at its core, there's two types of people who, or, or two types of organizations who prefer HCI, right? One is, um, you know, quite simply virtualization administrators who are tired of dealing with the storage team. But the other is, right, those those administrators who don't want to deal with the infrastructure, which is, I think, who you're talking about. I right? am. And that they're application administrators at heart, right? Yeah. I just want to click a button and get my virtual machine. Yeah, right. I'm 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 an ADFS administrator. I've spent 25 years, you know, customizing ADFS. What the hell do I care about where it's running, yeah. right? It's but it's not part of my job function. I I think we also need to make sure that we we talk about a much bigger and broader problem here, right? The companies that we work for, you know, our customers, our partners and all, they are now in a position where they have to have greater agility, right? Every business out there is moving faster. Absolutely. Right? Because so, there are more competitors coming in. There are there are more features that are being delivered by competitors. There's you know, you know, when you look at companies who have been successful online and grown revenue because they were able to, you know, you look at Target, for instance. They are a great example of, you know, and, they, and they're very public on this, right, talking about how they leverage DevOps and how they've completely changed the way that they are delivering a customer experience. That is a distinct differentiator for them. You look at the pizza industry, right? It seems bizarre, but the no. biggest change yeah. that the pizza industry has seen since the 30-minute delivery is the fact that people can order online and the experience that you have, whether you go to Papa John's or whether you go to Domino's, has an impact as to whether you're going to to shop there. Yeah, you guys want a pizza? I can tweet this pizza emoji. Yeah, I, I could text. So I, I do want to interrupt you for a second. And so agility as an IT organization is something that's used fairly frequently, but I've learned that there's a lot of different definitions. So can you can you elaborate a little? Right. So you know, the the reason I kind of leveled that up, right, is because it's the responsibility for the IT organization and the development organization, right, if those are separate or how they're viewed by the business, to be cognizant of how the business makes money and how it can differentiate and how it can do things. So when I talk about, you know, agility for, you know, IT and for the data center, it is with direct respect to that. When I talk to customers Frequently, what we're looking at is like, yeah, sure, we'll talk about the operational benefits and the things like that. But when I talk to them about it, it's very much in, here's the way that you can address these business impactful events, both positive and negative, right? Impact does not necessarily have to be a negative word, right? Business impactful events, these situations where you need to be able to address them quickly, for instance, let's say we'll use Papa John's, right? Let's say they introduce a new feature, you know, that allows them to generate more revenue because, you know, they're they're able to tack on something 
that oh let's say let's say Papa John started to be able to deliver beer and wine, okay, this would be a very very popular feature, and that would probably have a relatively significant impact on the app experience. It would hit databases more because now they're having to coordinate with suppliers that are going to help. For, you know, this is this is a fictitious situation, yeah. right? What does IT do if it's more popular than they had expected? Because you have two alternatives, right? You have one, you over-deliver and over-provision, and you have way more resources than you need. This is for on-prem, right? Yeah. You can go out to the cloud and deploy out to the cloud, right? And then, you know, spin up as much as you need when you need. But if you're on-prem, you, you either have to spin up more databases, provide more storage, you perform storage vMotions. You know, there's there's all these tasks that you may have to do in order to to handle that. And what I'm seeing that we we need to be doing when looking at infrastructure extensibility is saying how do we allow the IT organization to see this situation and rather than say, well, we can't do anything about that until tomorrow, how can we start providing instantaneous results? And and you know either taking advantage of a positive impact, or you know responding to a potentially negative impact in a much more meaningful and and you know agile way. And one one problem this is trying to solve, and this is something I, I dealt with when I first started my career. This this is yeah. Web 1.0 stuff, right? So you had an e-commerce site back in the early days. And if you were an admin and your company was about to announce a big sale the next day or whatever, you, you were, like, on call for 24-7 for the next week. You were worried about the web servers frying. You didn't have enough storage. You didn't have enough CPU. You knew things. The website always went down. That's what happened, right? It, it, Inevitably, it, it went down. I've it's, literally got the mayor over my shoulder. Yeah. The website went down because you, you were never ready. You couldn't be. There was yeah. no physical way you could do it. Now there is. Well, and they're still not ready. <laughs> And you're still not, but they there, still there's go a, down on launch. But there's a way to do it now. There's, you're more flexible. You have virtualization in place. Well, the, the the difference is now they go down on purpose. They go down because oh, they 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 demand. No, they go into it saying, "We've built an auto scaling application. We're just going to throw workload at it. It's going to fail for two hours, and then it'll scale out, and then it'll be it'll be right sized for the workload." Like it's architecturally, like you go right. They, they still break, but they break on purpose now. Well, I mean, but that's the point, but right? That's have, that's next generation it. application development, yeah. right? That's that's where you start talking about cloud native apps. That's where you start talking but, about but, where the infrastructure doesn't matter. No, right? but you the know what though? Availability is in the application. So this this is where I don't agree with just about everybody else who has this conversation. I don't draw a line between these three different environments and say this is possible with this, but not with this. Like these these. These approaches are possible in all of these environments. You can programmatically manage, you know, your, your, give me your, your oldest, scariest thing out there on the planet, right? You know, go into to our oldest accounts that we've got with, with big, massive, you know, AX arrays running healthcare apps that haven't been touched since 1992. Those can still be automated and managed. It's literally a design principle. When you encounter a change... What is your reaction? Is your reaction, let me go find the GUI and find the wizard, right? Or is your reaction, let me go open up some documentation and try to figure out, you know, how, how I'm going to manage this thing? And, and, and that key knee jerk of which tool do you open, right? Do you reach for the, the, the bag of tricks and you're going to 
you know, maybe it'll take me an hour instead of five minutes because I've got to go figure out what this API is and I've got to do some some testing and I've got to, you know, do some exposure. So, you know, each individual task will take longer. But in aggregate, every time I complete a task, I'm crossing it off the list forever. Yeah, and I think you touch on something that you know the audience needs to be very cognizant of. You know, when we talk about, and especially when I talk, you know, I, I can I could be accused of sounding a little bit pie in the sky and and you know perfect scenario, but you know the reality is, is that this stuff does not appear overnight. It it yeah. occurs as a result of learning. It occurs by being very, you know, introspective of the environment and what's really happening. You have to understand what needs to happen, understand what can go wrong, and, you know, start focusing on removing humans from that element. You know, now, granted, you can write really bad code that can make problems worse, right? So if you don't understand, you know, the process, then, you know, the automation journey is much more challenging. I think where a lot of people uh, get hung up is two parts. One, there's not enough support to do what they want to do on the platforms that they want to run, which is getting better yeah, across that, the board. Yeah, And then number two, there's a skills gap where they simply do not feel like they have a comfort level or a knowledge level to be able to execute on that. And that's in part why I think that we, we're seeing a big rise in in you know what I was describing earlier as an infrastructure developer, because these are people who honestly are not infrastructure people. They yeah. are software developers who know how to consume APIs who are basically being taught what infrastructure does, right? Because they consume these resources, they just have never been allowed to touch these resources. And now they have an opportunity to, because they have a much broader view, um, you know, depending on where they originated, they can have a much broader view on what the full process is. And, and that's why they can make the larger impact, right? They don't have to learn how to code. They already know how to code. And then they can provide more capabilities to both operations and dev through services, you know, that, that, they, can, that they can produce. So, so I'm an infrastructure developer, old school, um, sorry, not infrastructure developer. I'm an old school infrastructure admin, right? I, I see the, the train coming. How do I get on board? Yeah, I mean, you, the, the first thing to do is right on with what Glenn was saying. You have to start identifying things and start automating them and checking them off the list. And, you know, I, I talk about this a lot at VMUG user cons and VMUG events and things like that. What it really comes down to is identify a problem, identify or, or a task that you do frequently, manually, that takes time, and figure out how to automate it. Now, the first place to go, go to the community, right? And I, I believe PowerShell is probably, you know, still the best and lowest barrier to entry, followed yeah. by Python. Yep. Right? Learn one of those two. I don't care which one. Yeah, me pick, neither. Pick one of them it, it up. It really doesn't matter as long as it works, right? Right. And and then and here's the other thing, right? If you start looking at you know things like Puppet and PowerShell DSC, those two are actually almost interchangeable. So well, regardless yeah. of which environment, like you know, what you what ecosystem that you know, you you are drawn to. So so and and that's the other thing that I really wanted to get to uh, on this uh, on this topic, uh, which, which is the fact that. Whenever, 
whenever we get on this conversation, at some point, you know, Andrew, great question, right? It's it's absolutely needs needs to be asked because it's great something question, that, Andrew. that that the listeners deal with all the time. You know, okay, all right, Glenn, I hear you. You're telling me that that I need to quit opening up System Manager and start opening up some shell, but I've been doing this for 25 years, and I, you know, I'm already working 14 hour days. Like seriously, come on, give me a break here, right? There's the key, right? 14 hour days. Bingo, right? That's not sustainable. No, and and there's 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 two ways that you can really deal with that problem. The 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 first is with a tool, and the second is 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 you know bespoke. The tools that we traditionally used were were very like task specific. They were very you know one off. You know things like VSE are amazing, right? They they make it very very simple uh, to to manage a product that you're not familiar with, but they can only handle the workflows that they've been. Ta- you know, specifically built to do. And if, if you want us to add a function, we have to go through a development cycle to add that functionality. And if you don't like the way we do something, too bad. You go into the bucket, you get prioritized with everybody else, and, and if we end up setting a setting to 12 that you wish was 13, well, guess what? It's going to be 12 because we're the ones who are setting it. If you set it, you can set whatever you'd like to set. Yeah. Right? And, and the tooling to do that is going through a transformation where the skill bar is about to come down to the ground. And we're going to have two yeah. different types of people who are playing inside the sandbox. You're going to have what, what, what the DevOps community calls to, uh, uh, tool, toolsmiths and, and toolmakers, uh, and then you'll have consumers and users, right, teammates. And, and the smiths are the guys who need to worry about programming and APIs and all that stuff because they're the ones that are building the tools that the rest of the organization is consuming. But the workflow is the important part. You're not opening up a GUI and you're not trying to go off and, and one-off it, right? And, and just solve it through the, the uh, what the hell is that, that meme on the internet for just hiring a bunch of people and clicking for a dime a piece? The Mechanical Turk or something like that? Yeah, that's yeah. an Amazon service. Yeah, there you go. You know, you could take that approach to to, sol- to problem solving, uh, or or you could take the approach where you just throw a CPU at it. Right. So i want to I want to you know bring one more thing up because when whenever I have this conversation all the time, right? And I know yeah. you do as well, Glenn. Yeah. I mean, if if you're in the automation space, you're you're constantly encouraging people you're like you got on. How do you not have time? You're pushing a wheelbarrow with square wheels, and I'm holding round ones for you. Um, the the audience I want to listen to now are people who manage groups. And, yeah. and and here's the thing. Your people probably really want to do this. Your your environment needs it, right? It, you're going to get value. I have never met an organization that implemented automation that didn't get huge returns. In order to accomplish that, it has to be a strategy of the organization. So as yes. a leader in an IT organization, even if you're just the operations team for Windows or just the opportunity, well, you're already using PowerShell, but if you're an operations team for, for storage or VMware or networking, whatever, yeah, you have to dedicate at least one person. And, and I found that the most success happens is, is one person owns it to get started and to start checking things off the list. And what ends up happening, and I saw this at Cisco when I worked there as well, you start doing it and other people say, oh, can I use that? Absolutely. This is for you. Awesome. Hey, I went ahead and made a couple of changes for this other part of the environment. Is that cool? Absolutely that's cool. Right. Yeah. And now what you've done is you have one person who is like your your central point for you know getting all this stuff done and getting it started, but they're also basically feeding the fire. They're going, you know, and you'll have 
some people who just don't use it. They just don't want to. They don't trust it. They've had bad experiences, something. And that's okay. You don't have to have 100% of your people doing automation. Right. What you do is you get enough automation to where those people who don't want to do automation no longer have to do tasks that they were having to do manually. They yeah. can still keep doing manual tasks. They're just not doing all the same ones. So, so I got two things, right? So one, um, you know, it, going back to talking to right the managers, right the team leads, stuff like that. Right when we had Denise Cox on the power on the podcast, uh, you know, last year, early last year, maybe yeah. late late twenty fourteen. Right, she was talking about my auto support, but she brought up a really good point in that the goal is to go from reactive to proactive at a minimum and ideally preemptive operations, right? And getting there through something like automation is significantly easier. Well, it's the only thing that makes it possible. Like so going back to Josh's point earlier about change right and your ability to change. Uh, your ability to make a change in an environment, which is really the only metric that that an operations team should be tracking in 2016. And don't give me your uptime. I could care less. Like, how fast can you actually get something done? Um, because that's what determines all the other metrics, right? When you're in a crisis, when you're in a fire, your ability to make rapid, safe changes is what puts the fire out. That's how you get out. We'll, we'll ignore the ITIL change process for a moment. Well, well there, there's that whole mess. <laughs> you know that. You know what, though? Great in theory, in practice, completely worthless. Uh, I wouldn't say completely <laughs> worthless, but... So, again, used to be ITIL practitioner, right, all that other stuff. It is a framework of recommendations, not laws. Um, So the other thing I wanted to touch on... ITIL apologist Andrew Sullivan. So, so (laughs) Josh, you briefly mentioned, you know, Puppet Chef and the desired state configuration stuff. So I, I, you know, I think a lot of people lump all of those in together, right? Automation with desired state configuration tools and all that other stuff. Yeah, they shouldn't. You're right. And yeah, I'd really love to hear you, uh, you know, elaborate on the differences, the use cases, right? When one is more appropriate than the other and and why people should use them. Wow, this could be an entire other podcast, but so I'll um, I'll, kind of keep it down and narrow. Uh, I look at anything that's desired state, think of the actual words that I just said desired state. Yep. This is where you want to maintain an identity on a piece of IT property asset, right? Whether it's an operating system, an application, whether it's a component in the infrastructure, um, whatever, right? And you want to make sure that it stays that way in perpetuity until you tell it to be something different. And instead of going into the system and making it different, you change the identity. Um, you know, I, I try to use... Uh, I don't know, a lot of people uh, probably didn't watch it. It was a, a Joss Whedon program called The Dollhouse. And it's it's a great example of this to where you basically, everything is blank. Anytime you get anything, whether it's an application server or a storage system, a network device, when it shows up, it is blank. Yeah. Right? And in in the show The Dollhouse, everybody's blank. And what they do is they imprint this person with an identity to go out and perform a certain task, right? Um, And when you start thinking about desired state tools, you have to start thinking that you are working with blanks and that you want to produce the full identity of what that is so that you can make it take on that identity. And that if anything changes on it, you take it back. So if we use Josh as an example, the Josh identity has has red hair, has a red beard with spots of gray in it, right? And you know, 
if in, in blue eyes, right? We'll use those. If if I were to blank out or if I were to shave my beard, I would implement desired state to say, nope, that beard is supposed to be there, right? The beard does not go away. Yep. You you took it away, right? But I'm putting it right back. And and here's the other thing that when people are using desired state tools that they have to think about is why were you allowed to take the beard off in the first place? Right? Why did you yeah. do that? Yeah, who told you you could do that? Yeah. And where and where is he? Because I need to go talk to him. Well, no, it, and, and it doesn't necessarily need to be okay. So there, I, I was just trying to look it up because I can't remember um, the the book. Uh, I'll I'll find it and you can put it in the show notes later. But it, it's focused on dealing with blame and how you how you handle you know and and adopt blameless IT. Yeah. And what it came down to it, is in this story. Stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in this story, somebody essentially took down the network for this uh, big trading firm, this bank type type environment. And he was fired. And what the, you know, in, in the story, what they came up with was like, he was not the root cause, right? Yes, he was the one that implemented the, the, uh, the code or whatever. Like he, he entered, entered a command and it essentially took down the network. But he did a very common task and it shouldn't have taken down the network. So what was the root cause? Was the root cause that there was something buggy in the code on the switch? Was the root cause the fact that he was able to execute the command? Was you know, where was the root cause? And and so, you know, it's when when you look at that scenario like, well, how were you able to take off your beard? Right? Maybe you shouldn't have been able to do that. Or did you have a legitimate reason to do that? And should you have done it outside of change? config tool and and things like that so you know when when you're looking to maintain an identity and and to be able to track change and to understand or you know bring things back to that identity that's where you start looking at desired state tools yeah i I tend to describe um the difference as you know automation is really great for things like hey go out and create me a volume or create an export or create a share or whatever that happens to be Mm -hmm. tomorrow how do i know that that volume is supposed to be there well, how you, do I know what it's supposed to look like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If somebody goes in and deletes it, how do I know that it was that it, that it's supposed to be deleted, right? And the desired state system, regardless of which one we, you use, right, is that source of record. Yeah, well, here's the thing though, right? I mean, the way you describe that, uh, I think is uh, is still limited because desired state tools are using the same automation capabilities yeah. that you would do to to do sure. an ad hoc sure. ad hoc change. Right. The difference is, is that they they have a mechanism to simplify that. Right. Well, Instead of writing all the code and the logic and, and all the things around it, all that stuff's already built in, and it just goes out and executes. Yeah. So so there's there's two magical words that uh, that we use when whenever we're you know trying to to explain you know, like the difference between these, uh, and it's it just escaped me. I've not had enough sleep this week. You're gonna have to edit this out. Magic. I, no. Uh, I didn't potent. I didn't potent and imperative. Um, thank you. So there's two words that we use when we're explaining this uh, to, to, to people because, in my opinion, it, it really kind of succincts the entire conversation. Um, the, the, the f- when you're dealing with a automation platform, you're you're making what's known as Im- imperative changes, and what that means is you you must know the current state and the the transitional state in order to get to the end state of 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 an environment so so to to give you an put this in 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 actual words that mean something you know i've got a vmware data store it's current it's current size is 1 terabyte right uh, and and it's out of it's out of space i need to make it bigger 
right? The imperative way of going through that is to write a monitor, which goes through the data store and looks at how much space is in it, right? And then goes through and, and, and do I have enough space? Okay, no, I don't. Well, let me go through and I'll walk the tree and I'll make everything bigger, right? You, knowing the current state, the state that it needs to go to in between, and the final state that you want to, to the, the, the object to be in. That's complicated, man. And teaching someone to write code that can go through those three, those three phases safely at scale with logging and security taking a, and accounted for, is comp- it, it's hard, right? That's a challenge. With desired state systems, you skip the first two steps and you just declare the end state of the application stack. You don't ever think about it. It's not your job. It's up to the toolsmith. It's up for the guy who's writing the resource providers and the plugins, which, by the way, are almost all open-sourced on CodePlex. Like, there's very little proprietary code in, in, in this community. It, it's all CodePlex and GitHub. So, like, it, it's completely open and transparent. It's an open book for you to read. I, I really just don't think there's, there, there are excuses anymore. You know, you can't. You really can't look at me and and in this day and age and go, "Well, I don't know. I was surprised, right?" It's, and and I will specifically note that both uh, OnTap and SolidFire have Chef modules. Yep, right, available today through the open source. Community. Yeah, you know, I, I I desired state is one of those things that that I have personally been trying to push it faster because I really think it's the answer to all these problems. Like just trying to teach people to write code has been a nightmare. I've been doing it for a decade, and 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 it's you're just pushing people uphill. It's it's they're intimidated. They don't want to learn. They already have too much stuff. Followed by like well, a, and then they have people like Glenn screaming at them. Why are you not automating? Why are you so <laughs> stupid? Well, no, no, it's not. It's not that. It's no, and you know what? It is specifically not that. That is exactly my point when I get on 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 these tyrants with with uh, fellow teammates. You know, I'll never judge a customer because I, I, I don't know your shoes. I don't know your situation, but I'll judge my own team every single day. And I'm just looking at them like, well, why are you doing it like this? Just just take the 30 minutes and go figure out how to do it this way and then save that somewhere. And now that's in your toolbox and you don't have to do that again. And you just start building your tool box. Yeah. Like, and and so I want to you know I want to go back to what I was saying you know to the managers yeah right because now especially in the VMware space right in the vSphere space um, you know you have multiple mechanisms for sharing you know structured automation capabilities right you can use vRealize Orchestrator build workflows and expose them in Virtual Center Server you can also leverage uh, the Power Actions which is you know it's you know, it's not a, a full-on official product. It's a fling, right? But it is a capacity for being able to take code that someone's produced and put it in, in into a context that people are very safe and comfortable with leveraging. You know, I, I think that organizations that get the most success out of automation are when they have someone there that's a champion for it, that is focusing energy on it, and is making whatever they do easily consumable by other people. Uh, I'll share a story yeah. from when I was doing operations, right? You nailed it. I wrote a script. This was a very clever script. I have moments where I'm clever. Um, and I, I was able to automate an entire process that had to be done in a change window. And we had a team in India that worked and did change windows off U.S. hours, right? And I gave them the script. 
I said, here, run this PowerShell script, and it will perform the entire task for you flawlessly. Just enter in the, the virtual center name and go. And so at 11.30 that night, I get a phone call. Um, we're, we're ready for you to run your script. <laughs> I'm like, no, I gave you that script. But the thing was is they weren't yeah. comfortable executing it. So what I did was is the following week I did a training. for I, I, I stayed up late that night, did a training for the team in Bangalore, and they were an awesome team, loved these guys. Right. Um, the, the biggest regret is I never got a chance to go out there and spend time over there with them. But what I also learned is that I needed to create all of my stuff to where I'm not executing a script. I'm providing them functions and providing them uh, some type of user interface where there's a feedback, where I'm prompting them for information because they're more comfortable with that. And so since that time, I don't write scripts usually. I write functions to where it goes in the pipeline where I can say, you know, get VM host, name, pipe, execute whatever the thing is that I wanted to do. And I found that by doing that and focus ener focusing energy on making it simpler for people to consume, they're more likely to consume it, the quality is better, and then regardless of what you're leveraging, it's going to get implemented, and, and it takes that intimidation away. Yeah. I, I'd it, argue that it wasn't simplicity there, because running a script is double-clicking, typing in a command, and the CLI. The, the, the challenge there is the fear of the unknown. And if I don't know what this thing does, and, I don't, and I'm not used to doing it, I'm going to be less likely to want to do it. If I have a button well, I can click, so the, I can, I'll do well, it. Yeah, but, that, but that goes to my point, right? right. The, the intimidation factor in, in that not understanding what it does and things like that, you know, that, is, that, is a, that is a problem. Right, right? it is. But it, and so the two ways that you address that, and you have to address them both at the same time, is you have to train up the people that are going to consume the automation, and you have to make it as simple as possible for them. Now, Maybe you just teach them how to dot source things and, and they'll be comfortable, but that's not really how scripting and automation generally works. It usually requires some knowledgeable input in order to accomplish the task. Or you write it to where it doesn't, right? And, and so that's, that's, a, that's a big challenge a lot of organizations face when, when trying to adopt this. But it's doable. A lot of this stuff's already out in the community. It's just getting someone comfortable enough to read it and making sure that they, they understand what it's doing and then facilitate it for everyone else. It's, it's the classic problem of teaching a man to fish versus handing him a meal. It yeah. really is. You have to take the additional time to go teach them to fish. Yeah, I, I prefer giving them uh, a, a, a fish and a fishing rod at the same time and say, eat this while I teach you how to fish. But the challenge is, is you're trying to teach a man to fish who has a fear of water. Yeah, but but the I mean, there. Oh, yeah. this, this is going to go crazy. Right, so I, I can mean, already tell. Yeah, so I mean, so the you know, I'm, I'm afraid of water, but I'm never touching the water. I'm so, never there. But, yeah, but and all I have to do is throw my line, in and I'm good. So teaching them to fish and not be afraid at the same time is the end goal. I think that's that's actually not specifically what 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 I'm railing against, uh, or, or have been railing against for way too long. Uh, it's it's the it's the allergic to the the perceived allergic response that I get from from a lot of my peers in this industry, whether they be customers, partners, or or you know fellow TMEs. Like I I know a lot of people who just look at it and go, well, I'm not a coder. 
they self-identify and they define themselves by their current knowledge um, instead of going, well, I never learned how to code. That is an important distinction, right? Okay. One says, I'm never going to be capable of this. The other says, I, am, I have yet to put the time and effort into yeah. a trying to adopt this skill. So teaching a man to fish is usually hunting. <laughs> so so let me let me let me help you bring it back around full circle, right? One of the fun things that's going to be a part of my job at SolidFire at NetApp, right? As Solid a developer, now part of NetApp. Now part of NetApp. Um is as a developer advocate, I'm I'm clearly very focused on people who want to consume our APIs, our SDKs, yeah. PowerShell whatever. You know, but there's always a part of me that, you know, and and my favorite thing in my job my favorite thing is opening people's eyes to possibilities. I, I've, I've legitimately had customers call BS on me when I told them things that they could do with our platform, right? And they're not even storagey things, right? They're, they're just, you know, it's not about how fast the flash is and what the application's going to see. It's being able to manipulate it with a script, with yeah. PowerShell, things like that. Literally have this guy look me in the eye and say, I call BS. I don't believe that's possible. And then the joy of pulling out my laptop and showing them how it works. I mean, that's fun, right? But I look at part of my job is very much as opening up the possibilities to the point where yeah. even if you're hesitant and unsure, you look at that and say, I want to go to there. Josh, can you help me go to there? And I'm like, yes. Like, that is, that is very much a part of my job, right? I may not be the one that shows you exactly how to do it. I mean, that'll be a function of my role, obviously. It's what I've been doing. But I want to facilitate you and get you to the right people who can help you be extremely successful when you say, I want to go to there. I, I, I can't make you go there. I just want to make you want to go there. They yeah. want that delicious fish. They want, they, they, want, they want the delicious fish. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting problem, right? Because I know that, and I imagine you've, you've had very much the same path for the past couple of years, but I know my, my own path in this industry it's it's just been right and full of you know a lot of talk about automation and a lot of talk about orchestration and like next generation platforms and systems but but the the practicality of the teams that are that are actually you're working with there's there's a pretty big chasm like it's just it, it's missing yeah it, the it, follow through is missing and yeah. and and the reason that it's a letdown is these products are so powerful they are so unbelievably powerful, and they can do things that remove years of effort from an organization just, just by changing the data workflow or changing how you interact with the infrastructure. And, and to have one sitting in the data center not doing those, those functions just because the, the, the guy who's in charge of your storage's answer is, well, I don't know, I, I learned file view and I never learned anything new. <laughs> like, I, I just... You, at a certain point, you just want to shake them and be like, "Come on, man, wake up!" D never shake the customer. So I, shake. I got, I got one more thing for you because I know we're starting to run out of time. It's, oh, it's we're, getting up. Yeah, close. we're way over. Yeah, so nah, we're not that. I'm, far. I'm loquacious. One more thing for you. Right. So I have encountered on more than one occasion, right, customers who are they refuse to automate because of the impact, and by that I mean, what happens if you accidentally type the wrong thing, and instead of impacting one volume or one of your tenants, you impact all of them in a similar period of time. And it's yeah, no, that's it's a easy. genuine fear. Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a that is a genuine fear. 
here, here's the thing that I've seen. What happens when you do it manually wrong and you don't know which one you did it to? Yeah. And the fix is a lot longer than the, the screw-up, right? So what I generally recommend to people is if you're going to do something and you have trepidation about it having a negative impact, don't do it until you've already written the resource that will revert it back. Like I'm, I'm dead serious. Yeah, back out like, the if change. You don't, if you don't already know how to back out the change, first of all, you shouldn't be executing the change if you don't know how to back out the change because that's just poor change management. Yeah, no right? one-way streets. That's street. not even management. That's just change. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one-way streets. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I, I think the, the fear, I understand the fear, but it, it's illogical fear, right? And, and that's fine. Like We are humans. Like We have illogical fears all the time, right? Like um, clowns. Yeah. Spiders. I think spiders is a legitimate <laughs> terrified of spiders. Fear. Yeah, yeah, no, but but like it's a, it's a, it's it is an illogical fear, right? The fear that you're going to screw up massive amounts of things versus small amounts of t- things, right? Yes, you may mess it up, but you can fix it back the way it was very quickly or don't do it, right? You can fix it back the way it was, and then you know what not to do. You know how to go back. And it also goes to the other thing I always tell people. Always test in production first. No, just kidding. Never test in production first. Never, right? You always need to test somewhere else, right, to make sure that it is doing what you want. Um, you know, I like to live dangerously. There is no test. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna plug the the SolidFire GitHub uh, repo for PowerShell because on there we have you know one of the you know there's two there's two things that whenever you were would bring SolidFire into a vSphere environment that you have to do. A lot of times we'd have customers who you know may be moving from Fiber Channel to iSCSI and it's kind of a new thing for them, which is cool, right? Uh, and then we'd also have the the fact that you know our best practices for how vSphere should be configured for SolidFire is different than for NetApp or EMC or for anybody else, right? We, there's a lot of co- you know commonality there, but there's a lot of difference. Um, so what I focused on early on at SolidFire as we got our PowerShell module out was how do you implement new volumes into you know into data stores into the environment and automate that. Let's get that out of the way and simplify that. And how do you implement the VMware best practices? So I worked with a fellow solutions architect, Aaron Patton. We figured out the configurations we needed. We figured out the commands that were required to do it. We wrote you know, a PowerShell script that did it. I converted it to an advanced function. And now you can go in. You can say, you know, this cluster, these hosts, execute this. Here's parameters for which ones you want to execute. Right, and here's another function that goes out and checks all those things to return a report to to make sure that you have it correct. So if you were to go in and change your queue depth to something you didn't want across all of your ESXi hosts, and you're like, "Oh crap, that's bad!" Up arrow, change it to the value you want, and now it's back to the way it's supposed to be. Right. Yeah. So I I think it's an illogical fear. I think it's just you know it comes down to being comfortable with what you're doing. Well, there no, I, I agree with that. I, I just want to uh, uh, th- throw out there, 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 there is one instance where it is a logical fear, and that is when you're dealing with remove commands on storage. Well, that's why there's a confirm. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Are you if? sure well, you want to delete everything? Yeah, with, with PowerShell, you have both confirm and what if, right? Yeah. 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 Set, set, your, use, set use. your impact appropriately. Yes. Well, and that's, you know, that's one of the things I, 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 had, I explained to a customer one time with SolidFire. They're like, but what if I delete the volume? I'm like, well, that's okay. You can recover it. Here's the command for going and find the deleted volume, and you can recover it. If that happens, right? 
Um, yeah. Because, but here's the thing: the likelihood of your script screwing up is only as likely as you screwing up the script. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so, if you did it wrong, if you're doing it wrong already, then yes, you're likely to mess something up in the script. Right. And you're just as but, likely to do it manually. Yeah. Exactly. But, but but Josh already touched on the on the big 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 difference between the two. When you fail in a script, you fail every single time spectacularly. When you fail through human interaction, you fail in very mysterious ways that eat up weeks of work. They just throw weeks of unplanned work at an ops yep. team trying to figure out why change? is that when the workload moves to this server, it starts to suck. Why is that? What is different? Why is this one broken and well, this one isn't? That would, that would be because Bob was the one that upgraded that host, yep. whereas Bill upgraded all the others. And then Bob left. And then, and then Bob <laughs> left and didn't document what he did. So now exactly. we have to nuke it from orbit. So we to called Bob right. and said, hey, could you come back? And he's like, well, I'm going to charge you a consulting fee. And then we're like, no, that's not going to happen. Let's just figure it Wait, out ourselves. Wait, you can do that? You can. I'm kidding. <laughs> But but it's all it's all the it's all the same problem in my in my view, folks. Like the cloud isn't solving anything. Like it really, really isn't. It's a different it's a different billing model. No, it's it's not it's but, not necessarily solving um, what you would consider a traditional IT challenge. It's solving yeah. business challenges. Exactly. And it's it's a, it's a very and and it it comes with its own IT challenges. We see customers dealing yep. with this. It's one of the reasons why SolidFire has the fueled by SolidFire program. Because if you're looking at a, a cloud provider and you, you're you're looking to ensure that you know, you deploy on the cloud the same as you have it on prem, guess what? If they're fueled by SolidFire, you can use the same automation, you can set the same configurations, you can do all the same things. Like it, it gets more into that ecosystem feel. Yeah. And because you know you don't want to present yourself with more IT challenges, you just want to solve business challenges. Right and and doing so as simply and as you know programmatically as possible is always going to be a is going to be a game. So from the vendor perspective, if I'm writing a, a software package, yeah, it's not going to address everyone's problems. So how do I do that? I open it up to automation and APIs. And really, what this API automation thing does for vendors is it solves their problem of I can't fix everybody's problem at once, but I can enable you to fix your own problem. The problem is not all customers accept that answer. And, they don't. And that's the that's what I'm railing against. Yes. You know. Uh, you, uh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna save you from hanging yourself here. Um, he, here's the thing. Uh, you know, whether you're in being someone who's been in operations, mm -hmm. for, I spent you know ten years in operations. You know, dealing with environments of wide ranges, from a very small business to one of the largest enterprises in the world. You. The one thing that is the same is that everybody is a special butterfly and everything about your environment is unique. This is a truism. Absolutely. This is completely fair yeah. and it's completely acceptable. What we have to keep in mind as, as vendors and as partners and even as customers is that you know, because there is such a wide range and, and potential, potential disparity in how the products are consumed and how things are consumed – it, it is very challenging to to be prepared for every scenario, mm -hmm. which is why we still have feature requests and that we have behavior you know changes yep. and things like that. Like, that's why those things exist, and that's why we have bugs, right? 
I, I think as technologists and as especially from a vendor side, it's very important for us and it's a big focus for me is to show how you can leverage things in the broadest sense and what I consider the largest common denominator. Right? I can't sit here and pretend that I can solve every one of your automation woes. I can't pretend that you know the solid fire SDKs have you know been built and prepared for every scenario that you might throw at it. Like that's just you know there's things in the PowerShell module that just don't exist yet. We have ways around that, but like there's people are infinitely creative and their needs are infinitely diverse. Um, and so as such, you know I I'm fine with with there being a lot of disparity. You know I look at my role as I want to show you, you know, you know what this stuff looks like and how it is supposed to operate so that you have enough foundational base knowledge that if you vary from that at all, you're only concerned by understanding like that variance. And then when you come back to me, right, and talk about, you know, well, yeah, I really needed to do this, but it does that. You, know, you have enough base knowledge that you can tell me what the delta is, and it makes it easier for me to go to engineering or go to one of my peers to help solve that problem for that customer, right? And then everything gets better as a result. So I, you know, when, when I joked at the very beginning about I have people skills, right, th those people skills are really, really important, right? Because without that, you do have a, a broader disparity that you may not be addressing because you don't know about it. I want people to come talk to me and tell well, me what they're doing. Well, it's also just completely, un it, it, and I'll go ahead and hang myself anyways because I don't really care. The <laughs> <laughs> it's it's completely unrealistic to Let's try to pretend that you know you can build something that is going to to answer everyone's questions. Oh, like, absolutely! It's just not. not. It's not possible. But they were trying for a while, right? People were trying for a while and, and failed. And, and there are still some customers that, that will, you'll, you'll sit down with them and they'll just be like, why can't this do everything? Right. And, and you, you, this is what automation helps you do. It helps yeah. you do everything yeah. as per what you need to do. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that goes back to the original point we had when we started, right? Uh, customer, whatever you're doing, I'm on board. I want you to do it. Absolutely. I want you to do it quickly. Yep. I want you to do it successfully. And I want you to do it in spite of me. If, if need be. I do not want to be the anchor on your ship of progress. I want to be wind in the sails. And, you know, my focus is very much on let's figure out how to get more wind in the sails so that you can do what you need to do without us being... In fact, I, I told uh, some folks in our engineering team, like, I feel like I'm successful in the work that I'm doing if we have customers who never log into the GUI, Right. And we have a great new GUI. It's awesome. It looks great. It's like super functional, and it's and it's a pleasure to work with. I don't want anybody to ever have to log into it. Stay out. Well, right? yeah. yeah, but and and one because, off tasks. Well, there's always going to yeah. be somebody. But the the point is, I don't want them to have to. Yeah, that's the end goal, right? Yes. right. I want I want our automation. Ex you know, I want us to be able to take advantage of our extensibility in such a way that they can perform whatever tasks they need. Without going into the GUI, I mean, we have customers who deploy net new solid fire nodes automatically with PowerShell, no hands on, right? Nobody touches it. They plug it in, it gets DHCP, and it gets added, right? And and they've built automation for doing that. Like that's extremely extremely powerful. Yep. Were we thinking about that when we built it? 
not necessarily. With the first PowerShell module released didn't have that capability. It was added because we've heard that as a need. Someone said, wouldn't it be cool if, and then it became yeah. cool. And, and, and for the record, Jeremiah Dooley is the absolute king of, wouldn't it be cool if? Like he that, that that man can come up with some some just crazy outrageous and just fantastic use cases for stuff. Keeps me on my toes. All right. <laughs> we had Jeremiah on last week. We so did. If you, we if did. You didn't catch that. He did. He was in here for the deep dive. I guess we could continue to kick this horse for another twenty minutes to a half hour. Uh, yeah. But but I feel like uh, that horse I, is bloody. Yeah, I feel like it's just kind of like a puddle at our feet. If, uh, <laughs> well, if, well, if maybe we should revive it before we you know part ways, but. <laughs> Or we could just leave it there. Get the paddles. Clear. <laughs> well, I want to thank you guys for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, I, I'm local, so I will be he's, more than happy to... He's to, locally sourced. Yeah, I, and I'm free range. Are you free range? Yeah. We have That's a locally good. sourced I, free range. Are you gluten free? Well. I am not gluten free. I am not dairy free. I'm also not bourbon free. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. So I have officially missed my first 30-minute uh, meeting after our recording time, and I'm starting to lose my caffeine twitch. I'm so, worth it. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so uh, I can't quit let's, you. Let's land this plane. Let's bury the horse. You know, all, all, the, all the bad cliches. Uh, so, Josh, thank you very much for coming in. We really appreciate you uh, making an appearance here in the office. Uh, I, I know you're local, so... Uh, really, really appreciate you coming out. It's been a great conversation. Um, Absolutely. Glad to be here. And uh, with that being said, I'm going to uh, I'm going to make some coffee. Thanks, guys. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team and the dancing uh, Josh Atwell, <laughs> thank you for listening. Oh, you know what we forgot? We forgot to answer questions. Oh, we did. Oh, we, remember we, to send those questions to podcast.netup.com. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, we so, totally yeah. forgot about that. I've got a response from Joe Caradonna about data fabric that we can share with the listeners. So next next episode, we're going to hit that Definitely uh, right up we'll front. Definitely that up right up front. Is it just me that's getting off on this? I am getting off on this. Oh, oh yeah. What? Huh? Huh? <laughs> Wait, what podcast am I on again? This is uh, Adult Podcast. Uh,